Afghanistan veteran Jason Kander was the first millennial to be elected to statewide office. In 2018, in the midst of a high-profile election, he stopped his campaign to seek treatment for PTSD. Now, he's helping veterans fight suicide and homelessness, saving Afghans from Taliban retribution, and more. His latest book is the bestseller, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Healthcare. Jason, welcome. We're excited to talk to you and and congratulations on the book. Uh, Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So how did you, you know, as 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 a young lawyer end up in Afghanistan? Tell us a little bit maybe of the origin story before we get into the healthcare piece. Sure. So um, I was going to American University in DC when 9-11 happened. I was in my last year of college. And up until that point in my life, I'd always looked at military service as being in the, you know, maybe someday category. Uh, you know, it was like, well, I, I really admire that. And maybe someday I'll do it. And then 9-11 happened and it just, <clears throat> just sort of flipped. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that. And I'll just figure out the rest of my life around that. Because, you know, I've, my country was going to war and it just made sense to me. Um, I, I I decided that's what I was going to do. So um, I uh, was getting ready to start law school. So I started law school uh, that following year at uh, Georgetown. Uh, and I actually was gearing up to just like start ROTC right away. But then um, <clears throat> I played a pickup football game with a bunch of buddies. And I was the uh, idiot who was like, no, we should totally play tackle. Uh, and one of my really good friends to this day was on the other team and he and I were always rivals about everything. But the thing was, I was a baseball player. He was a, you know, all state free safety in Texas. So, um, anyway, I tore my ACL in that game at, at, at uh, a nice tackle by him. We still argue over whether I was in the end zone or not. Um, and then, uh, I had to get surgery and physical therapy, so I wasn't able to go in right away. So um, when I started as a as a one L at Georgetown Law, I also started as um, you know at the very beginning of, of Army ROTC, and so uh, I did ROTC while I was in law school. A lot of people were like, "Hey, man, uh, you know, you could skip all this stuff and just become a JAG." And I was like, "Yeah, I just kind of felt like at the time it seemed to me the Army probably had enough lawyers, and I wanted to get in there, and I don't know, I had." aspirations of doing these big things in the army. It was much more interesting to me at the time than law school. Well, I say at the time as if there was ever a time when law school was more interesting than something else that didn't really happen. Um, and so I became, I got my commission, became an army intelligence officer and, uh, volunteered to deploy. And that's how I ended up, uh, in Afghanistan in, uh, the fall of 2006. So it sounds like a, you know, a smooth, if you know, sort of uh, interesting transition from civilian life to military life. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we'll talk about the transition on the other side. I mean, how hard is it for veterans to transition to civilian life? It's very hard. I mean, you know, my case is one where you would, it's hard to imagine somebody being set up for a, a better or smoother transition, right? When you think about a, a really soft landing, I mean, I left Afghanistan and went back to a job that was totally unlike being a military intelligence officer in Afghanistan. I, w- I went back to being a lawyer at a at a firm uh, in Kansas City, you know, where they had like bagels and donuts available in the conference room on Fridays. I mean, it was completely different. Um, so, you know, on paper, it should have been great. I, I was employed. I was married. You know, my parents live here in Kansas City. I mean, I, I had a career. I had a wife and I had my extended family all there. 
Um, and that didn't change the fact that being deployed uh, to a combat zone, being in the situations that I was in changed my brain. Uh, and so that's like in the best possible example, right? And with the work that I do now, where I work a lot with homeless veterans and uh, veterans who are struggling in, in a lot of different ways, one of the things we work on most is restarting that military to civilian transition back at day one, even if folks have been out for a long time. And you know, when you think about it, let's say it wasn't somebody in my situation. Let's say it's somebody who they went into the military straight out of high school, which is the more common scenario, right? And during that time, they sustain some trauma or maybe they don't, maybe they don't deploy, nothing like that happens. But even then after four years, they come back home and they're not surrounded by people who did anything like they did over the four years previous, they knew where most of their meals were coming from. They never had to go likely, they never had to go get a lease on an apartment. They may have chosen to, but, but they likely didn't have to, they knew where most of their meals were coming from. They never even had to go get like cable figured out. So when you, when you layer over that, the feeling of separateness in a society where less than 1% of the population now serves in the military and the possibility of having sustained some trauma during your time. Now you're really complicating the ability to, you know, re-enter civilian life. And when you think about that, Jason, how much of that is the, the, the trauma of combat versus the trauma also of being in a high pressure situation all the time? One of the things you you sort of it's very evocative in your book is just moving around in a combat zone in an alien place with a lot of threats is pretty stressful. You don't have to be shot at to be pretty pretty pr- pretty stressed. I mean that's got to be something that I uh, that 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 creates some invisible burdens that not particularly folks on the you know at, at home don't necessarily understand. Yeah. And that's one of the big things I tried to get across in the book, right? Because that was my experience, the one you're describing. I I came home and was convinced for 10 years that whatever was going on with me could not be attributed to my deployment because I never fired my weapon over there. And in my mind, like that didn't count. Now, what I had to do some work to finally accept was the idea that, you know, as an intelligence officer who was going out and gathering this information, I was spending hours uh, at a time in the most dangerous place on the planet. Um, you know, just me and my translator, most of the time meeting with people who, you know, were unsavory characters of questionable allegiance. So, you know, nearly every day there was the the reasonable possibility of walking into a trap and, and getting killed. And so it took me a long time to accept the idea that even though I didn't fire my weapon, that as a, you know, clinical social worker at the VA put it to me that that didn't make me less of a combat veteran, that I had been exposed to all this danger every single day. uh, And that changed my brain. And, you know, toward the end of the book, one of the things I kind of come to is the idea that I have experienced something. uh, I know what something is like that most Americans thankfully don't know what it's like. And one is, is the, the raw physical fear of being killed violently, like, like a reasonable, this might, this might actually happen fear. Um, you don't process it as as fear at the time because you're too busy, like, you know, doing your job. Also not, and not, and not getting killed. I mean, you, 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 there's that, I remember very vividly the scene where you're looking at the door behind the person, you put your armor down, you're in an uncertain place. You've got a sidearm. Other folks don't. There are other people with AK-47s, uh, you know, just because you don't fire the weapon and that, that's, that, that's, you're processing not just fear, but challenge at a very high level of stress. That's got to have a long tail. 
Yeah, and that that's the other piece that uh, so it's you know the first is that that raw physical fear of a fear of a reasonable chance of being killed, but the second is what you're talking about, which is and what we always underestimate, which is you know several times a week and sometimes more than once a day preparing your mind to take another human life, whether you do or not, you know, you, it doesn't leave you completely unchanged, right? I mean, to, to just go right back to like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to write a legal memo um, was, a, it turns out, not a reasonable expectation for me to make of myself. So it sounds like yeah, I was going to ask about, you know, when did you figure out you had PTSD and why did it take so long? I think you've really kind of laid out, you know, what happened there. And given your own situation, which you've kind of described as almost like the ideal situation, and you can see where you, where you still ended up. I wonder, you know, how common is PTSD, PTSD in veterans overall, you know, based on your experience? You know, I've seen some statistics that say that, you know, of veterans over the last several years, folks who deployed, you know, they, they think it's as high as 20%. I think it's much higher than that. Um, it just, just because, uh, you know, I read somewhere where somebody had said, if you can go to war and come back unchanged, uh, you should maybe see somebody because there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, and it's no, like that. But that's it, that. That's absolutely right. Nobody who's been in a combat situation doesn't think it doesn't change their chase. I think that's really, really powerful. I, I also think there's you're really you've called out two different types of stress. One is just the stress of being in a, in 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 a, in a threatening situation all the time. You working in, on at a at a very high rate of threat, not threat, threat, not threat. And your brain does change. I mean, it's it's not you don't choose to change your brain. Your brain changes. The other is the stress that comes from that transition from order and tribe, the way Sebastian Younger refers to it. You know, of, of of family order and community, and then the loss of that. And I think that affects, or I think we we as a country probably have failed our brothers and sisters in uniform in kind of recognizing how traumatic that is. Based on the su- the the suicide and the and 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 the and the and the and the PTSD statistics, and I and I think that both of them matter. Yeah, and I'm glad you called that book out, John, because that's one of my favorite books on the subject. I mean, when when Sebastian read my book and liked it and decided to blurb it, it like meant a ton to me because I had learned so much, really, about myself just from reading his book, Tribe. And yeah, like what we do is we. Like when a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, whatever, when you go in, I guess I can only speak for the army and, you know, you were in the army. I think this will ring true to you. It, it, what's gotten across to you very early, like the moment you step off the bus for your first round of training is what you're doing is no big deal compared to what other people are doing. Right. And I don't really fault the army for that because, you know, what I did over there, I, I was aware of the danger, but I kept going into these meetings because I was like, you know, I know other people that are doing this, or I know people who I felt like had it worse because that's, you know, that's what I was led to believe. It, it was true. And it's also ground into me. But then I got like my buddy, Steven, who, you know, was in Fallujah in, um, uh, in 06, uh, you know, he, he was seeing his friends get hurt. He was getting shot at every day. So then a guy like me looks at him and goes, well, see, that's the guy who had it worse. And then he looks at other people and says, well, you know, I know people who had it worse. And so as a result, I can keep going into my meetings that I need to go to where I might get kidnapped. He can keep going out on patrol. 
And so I don't fault the military for that. The problem is when we come out, when we make that transition, nobody really ever does an adequate job of disabusing us of what was at one time that very necessary notion for us to do our job and says, you know, actually it was kind of a big deal. And it would be uh, expected that you would have issues. You should be on the lookout for them because it was important we tell you before that this was no big deal so that you could keep doing it. So you didn't like bite from that apple of knowledge and not be able to do your job. But now you should know because then what happens if you don't get disabused of it, you do what I did, which is you spend 10 years experiencing the symptoms, but trying to dismiss them because you're like, I have it on good authority that what I did is no big deal. Whereas if I had understood early on, oh, maybe it was a big deal. I probably, the symptoms never would have gotten as bad as they did because I would have treated the injury closer to when it occurred. So overall, I mean, how can we help war veterans with PTSD? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. One, um, the military could do a much better job of something really simple, which is educating people about PTSD when they first come in. You know, when you think about all the things that we educate folks about, like in basic training, right? Like, I mean, we, we learn how to how to look out for heat stroke. We learn how to, how to look out for, you know, like blisters. Like, I, I mean, John, I'm sure you and I are both basically amateur podiatrists. Like we know how to, how to treat our feet, you know, <laughs> trench yeah. foot. I mean, like, stuff. I mean, I'm, yeah. man, I can create a little donut hole, you know, blister thing, like nobody's business. Like, and I can still do it like in my sleep. Um, so they train us on stuff that's a lot more than, you know, fighting stuff. They train us in all sorts of things on how to maintain our physical health and the physical health of, of our battle buddies. And there's no reason in the world why the, basically the, the sub, this, the, the, the block of instruction essentially that I got as the very beginning of my PTSD therapy, which was basically, here's how your brain works. Here's how PTSD works. Like before they can give you any therapy, they got to teach you about PTSD. There's no reason that we can't take a day and a half in basic training or just like a, couple of hours would be great and teach people what PTSD is, what it looks like when it happens, why, and the key is why it happens, why it's a completely normal injury to have happen. Um, and if we did that, we would normalize it a lot more and we would have a lot more, uh, veterans remembering that training and soldiers too, and going like, Oh, I think I know what this is in me or in my buddy. That's the first thing. Um, and for the rest of us, I think, What's really important is going back to that whole idea of that necessary brainwashing is that, you know, I think that we've done as a society, whether it's for veterans or, or anybody else, we've done a pretty good job now of a steady drumbeat that says it is not a sign of weakness to get health. It's, it's an act of strength to the point where there's not that many veterans left who will act like going to get help is weak, right? Like when you, when they talk about their friends, right? Like they'll encourage their friends to do it. We're always going to look out for each other. The key is getting it across to more of us, A, that you're likely to think that it is weak for you to do it because you think what you did didn't count, but it does. And B, um, getting it across that this works because the way that our culture both in the news and like on screen depict PTSD typically is a, is what I refer to as PTSD porn. It is showing people in the grips of PTSD, uh, they're spiraling, they're untreated. And that's what we tend to show. It's not altogether inaccurate all the time, but what we never show is what's way common and happens all the time is that you know, people get treatment, they move to post-traumatic growth, it doesn't disrupt their life. And because we don't show that, a lot of veterans, and this was myself included, 
tend to look at PTSD before they've ever gotten any treatment and think it's a terminal diagnosis, whether, you know, at a minimum to their career and at a maximum to their life. And, you know, who's in a hurry to go get diagnosed with something like that, as opposed to if we make it clear, oh, this is a thing and it's treatable. And if we do a better job of that, a lot more people will take advantage of it. I think one of the challenges, Jason, is we don't actually, we train you how to, and we're constantly optimizing in the military and in other parts of it, how do you optimize around physical health? And then how do you train the body? You know, you, you, you're not going to brutally put someone on that, that 10K run that you did with your busted up knee every day because you'll, you'll, you'll break your troops. But we don't actually train people about the plasticity of the brain, how you 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 can get wired one way and then actually with help get wired a different way. We don't and we don't make it and 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 I think there is some some natural challenge and, and fear of admitting that kind of being vulnerable. Uh, and it's actually something that the, the Marines have shown some some openness around leadership around battle stress and really just stress in general is one way to actually connect to troops and treat them train them how to. How to manage it, but I think if we had some the same kind of training about brain plasticity, that it's a that it's a form of training, if you will, from injury as opposed to pride and 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 some form of uh, sort of macho. I think we'd be in a much better place. And I and I agree with you that the the Hollywood versions of this don't show survival. They just they just and, and thriving. They just show stress but i is there is there something in there about kind of just teaching people about the plasticity of the brain cuz honestly that's relatively new in brain research and it works and it's true yeah i think there's a lot to be said for it and i think what it comes down to is not underestimating the uh, ability of what is the most professional military in the history of the world to take information distill it and put it to use right and i'm talking E1, E2, E3, privates in the army, you know, and in the, in the Marines and throughout. I mean, I think we underestimate their ability to take information like that and, and put it to good use. I mean, the kind of stuff that the modern military uh, trains on, you know, whether it's maintaining your yourself physically or just tactics and strategy. I mean, the stuff that in, in a war that has, you know, that went for 20 years and pushed responsibility to the lowest levels it's ever been in the chain of command with the greatest possible, um, you know, uh, like third order effects of decisions at the lowest levels. If we were to educate people more on their brains, the way we're constantly educating them on their bodies and on the way they maintain their equipment, I think that, you know, American service members would surprise us in what they would do with that information. Jason, you've done a lot, um, you know, with veterans. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit um, about the Veterans Community Project and in particular veterans homelessness, veterans suicide, and and how you're uh, helping to address those issues. Sure. Thanks, David. I appreciate you asking. Um, so I'm the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project. Um, we are a Kansas City-based nonprofit, but we are expanding throughout the country. We uh, are building our campuses in several cities around the country right now. Um, and we do a couple of things. One, on the veteran suicide front and just assisting veterans generally, we operate outreach centers where we connect veterans with any and all services in the community, whether they be veteran-specific or not. Uh, one of the 
you know, well-known statistics in this area is that on average, 20 veterans every day take their life. What is less known about that statistic is that on average, out of the 20, 16 are not connected to any veteran-specific services at the time that that happens. So we have an extremely low barrier. We don't have a bunch of rules about what counts as a veteran, what doesn't, uh, and we're able to connect a lot of people with the services they need. What we're much better known for uh, are the villages of tiny houses that we build with complete wraparound services for uh, homeless veterans to transition them back into permanent housing and into being, you know, fully functional uh, and and vital members of of society again. And we do it at a really unprecedented rate of success. Um, it's the best civilian job I've ever had. Uh, and folks can learn more about it at VCP, like Veterans Community Project dot org. How big is the problem, and 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 how how and how much how, what what do you what do you need to to kind of scale that, Jason? So most of the federal government statistics say that when it comes to homelessness, that there's about thirty eight thousand homeless veterans in the United States. That number. I believe is is pretty low. I would say it's roughly 30% higher than that for a couple of reasons. One, you get to that number by going out on a single night, you know, usually in January and counting homeless people, which is pretty hard to do. And uh, second, uh, because that only takes into account VA eligible veterans. And so, and there's a lot of veterans out there that aren't VA eligible. Um, So what it takes to scale it is uh, you know, as we expand across the country, we need uh, municipalities that are open to doing things like, you know, uh, being open-minded about zoning, right? Because there's not a lot of places that are zoned for a village of 50 tiny houses. So we, we have to have a lot of support from the municipal level. Uh, we need local champions who are, you know, interested in getting in there before we've hired any staff on the ground and really volunteering a lot of time. We obviously need philanthropic resources. And then we need, we usually need a piece of land. Well, we always need a piece of land, but it doesn't always have to come first. Um, and, you know, it costs a few million dollars uh, to build one of these and, you know, roughly around a couple million dollars a year to uh, to maintain one. So it's actually quite affordable considering the enormous impact that it makes. Yeah, Jason, I, 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 I want to know, I just, I just really want to talk about the power of community, even when people are broken. I just think it's 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 incredibly tangible. I, well, I just wanted to know, David, whether we can go a little bit into politics before we we let Jason go. Do you want to? Please, why don't you take that? Okay. So, uh, why does President Obama think so highly of you? <laughs> um, <clears throat> just a good judge of character, I guess. No, I mean, um, you know, he he's been very kind to me, uh, and I mean, now you're going to get like a political sounding answer, but mostly because I don't really know how to answer it the way you said it, I guess. Which is, um, you know. Uh, that's a guy who I, I first ran for office in 2008. Right. And, um, I remember in 2004 when he gave the speech at the convention sitting, uh, on the floor next to the couch in my apartment that I had with my wife in, in DC when we were in law school and we were just blown away by him. And so he's been a political hero of mine now for 18 years. And, uh, and so when I did have the opportunity when I was thinking about running, for president to sit down with him and have him tell me that that was not a crazy idea. Uh, yeah, that meant a lot to me. Um, I think he and I, and maybe it's cause we're both sort of Midwestern in our, me and my roots all the way, him and his political roots. We maybe have a, a similar sensibility, I guess, about some of this stuff. Um, but it means a lot to me that, that the, uh, admiration is even, I mean, it's not equal. <laughs> I think I admire him a lot more than he admires me, but uh, that it's at least mutual. 
So are you going to be going get you think you'll find a place in your in your life to get back into politics, Jason? Uh maybe. Um you know, I I try and be pretty open about the fact that like I have no idea and I'm fine with it. Um <clears throat> there's you know, right now my kids are young, they're so fun. Uh I'm doing things I really enjoy, making an impact. I mean, look, I've made a there's no question in my mind that in the in the 6 years since I um, got out of elected office, uh, or, you know, in the, in the four years since I stopped pursuing elected office, I have made a much greater impact on the world. And I don't just mean my family, like the things I've been able to do than I did in office or pursuing office. So that doesn't give me a lot of motivation to jump back in right now. Cause I feel like I'm making a difference, but I'm also able to make a difference while I get to do things like play baseball for like actual baseball, not softball for like, you know, a, a men's baseball team. That's a bunch of guys I love and coach my son's baseball team and all this stuff I didn't think I was going to get to do. But the reason, even though I have no idea if I'll run, the reason I always answer, yeah, I might run for president one day. Uh, the biggest reason is because I figure that, you know, anytime I'm asked that there might be somebody listening who is thinking about, you know, how they hire or what it means to have somebody involved in your organization who is a veteran with PTSD or not a veteran, but with PTSD, I feel like it's important for me to say, yeah, I might run for president. And yeah, I could be president. It, nothing would stop me from doing that. Because if I don't answer honestly in that way, is that going to be in the back of their mind when they're looking to hire somebody for any job who they think might have PTSD? Like I, I want to make sure that people understand that if you treat this and if you maintain it, if you maintain, you know, what you need to do to keep it from disrupting your life, it doesn't, it doesn't limit you at all. Well, that's it for another episode of Care Talk. Our guest today has been Jason Kander. We've been discussing PTSD and veterans, housing for homeless veterans, the Veterans Community Project, and whether and when Jason will be running for president. I'm David Williams, <laughs> president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service. And thank you, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having me.